Our Father, many of us who grew up in church, we remember a hymn that would be sung with great gusto, Rise Up, O Men of God. And uh, we are living in times, Lord, where not only do we need to rise up, we need to wise up. We need your wisdom. There is a wisdom that is a wisdom of the world, but it is contrary to your wisdom. Paul talked about it in 1 Corinthians. Uh, It is so easy to be uh, persuaded and influenced and uh, indoctrinated with the wisdom of the world, which forgets you and forgets your word and believes that man is at the center. But man is not at the center. You are at the center. You are the creator. Uh, You spoke the world into existence. you put the stars in place in the solar systems. You know every star by name. We think people are great. We think nations are great. When we wise up, we learn and worship because you are great. We wise up when we listen to your word and you offer us truth, and you have given us your book. And in these days in which we are living, we need your book, and we need to be sustained by it. We are being pulled in so many ways, and we are being given so many false messages that we have to be anchored in your truth. And um, we would ask tonight that you would, as a result of our study in your word about where we are in this nation and where we are as Christians in a nation that used to give allegiance uh, to the one true God, now... um, now we're running from the one true God. And we've been in, become intoxicated with our own ideas and our own autonomy and independence, and no one can tell us what to do. But Lord, we bow and say we want to hear from you. Give us teachable hearts. Uh, encourage us. Give us backbone. Give us courage. Remind us that our lives are in your hand that you will accomplish which concerns us, and that this world is not the only world that there is. There is another world. This is simply preparation for the real deal which is coming. Thank you that in Christ alone we've been forgiven, and our, our future is secure because of the forgiveness of sins that was given to us by his mercy and grace and sacrifice. Encourage us tonight, we pray to be his followers. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Continuing this study called Godly and Gutsy, we've been looking at different men in the scripture. Everybody starts out ungodly. But when 
we encounter the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. And our eyes are open to the truth, and we understand that Jesus is God, that he came and he died in our place. 1 Corinthians 16, I delivered you as of, as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, that he appeared to Peter, then he appeared to the 12, then he appeared to over 500 at one time. Lastly, Paul says he appeared to me. Uh, Christ died in our place for our sins. When we come to know him, there's a radical change. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away, all things become new. To use the term that Jesus used with Nicodemus in John 3, we're born again. And uh, once we're born again, the issue is growth and the issue is maturity. And uh, it's not fast, it's slow, but uh, it's there. So when we start following Christ, we begin a process of godliness, of growing in godliness. Part of growing in godliness is that you learn to be a man of courage. The term gutsy that we've been using is actually in the dictionary. Um, as I recall, the, the Webster Dictionary defines that as uh, a gutsy as being marked by courage and determination. Historically, Christians have had to be gutsy. For a couple hundred years in this nation, you didn't need to be gutsy to be a Christian. It was pretty much an easy ride. It was pretty much a free ride. Uh, all of that has changed. So we're looking at men in Scripture who we can model ourselves after, who stood up when it was unpopular. To follow Christ means you're not going downstream, you're going upstream. That's what it means to follow Christ. Um, you go to your high school reunion, and you're not going to be popular. Because everything's shifted, and everything has changed. Tonight, we're going to look at a guy who embodied uh, godliness and gutsiness. We're going to look at John the Baptist. And I'd like you to turn with me to Luke chapter 3, and we're going to dive into this tonight. In Luke chapter 3, we're given... Uh, we, we are given the beginnings of the ministry of John the Baptist. And <clears throat> so much could be said about John. Um, you're going to see in Luke 3, in fact, we're going to skip over most of this. We just have to skip over it in order to stay on target for what we're discussing tonight. But you're going to see, beginning with verse 3, that he came and he preached a baptism of repentance and uh, what, what he did, he was a forerunner of Christ. He prepared the way for Christ. He was like a pulling offensive lineman for a running back. He's out there clearing a path. Um, he, um, he was absolutely a straight shooter. He took on the tax collectors. He took on uh, soldiers. Uh, he, uh, he glorified Christ. Verse 16, as for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I. 
and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Um, Jesus said, if you're not for me, you're against me. When this reference that when Jesus comes, he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He will either put you in his kingdom uh, or he will baptize you with fire, which is judgment apart from him. Again, Jesus said, if you're not for me, you're against me. So John came and he started throwing fastballs high and inside, clearing the way for Jesus, who was greater, who was superior. That's Luke 3. I want to look at the opening of Luke 3, and I want to look at the ending of Luke 3 for our purposes tonight. Um, Luke 3, 1. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee. And how many of you guys have already faded out? <laughs> right? I mean, what? Well, what is this? I've had a rough day. I've had a long week. Sure you have. This, this doesn't really compute with us because, I mean, now what if it had it said in the 15th year of the, what if it had it said, what if it said this, in the third year of the first administration of Ronald Reagan? You go. Well, I remember that. If you're old enough, you see. I, I was talking to one of my sons about Reagan this week, and he was telling me about what's going on with the election and how they're going after you know, this guy named Trump and all of this. And I mentioned some things about Reagan. He goes, oh, no, no. I said, oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and he said, oh, no. I said, hey, you weren't around. <laughs> In the 15th year of Tiber of Caesar, it, it, you know, it, it, was, it was a foreign to him. He wasn't around. Okay. Watch how he marks this. And he's going to give a Ross. There, there are two things I, I want you to see in this passage, just introductory as we're reading it. There is a roster of government leaders, okay, in verses 1 and 2. That's what this is. You got a roster. You got a program. You get a football game. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, we're going to come back to this guy, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea. So Tiberius Caesar, he was the head of the entire Roman Empire. They kept rolling out these Caesars, you know. And you can read about these guys. Well, Tiberius Caesar was the second Caesar. We'll get to him in a minute. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, you know about Pontius Pilate, so he's a governor. Uh, you know, he was over Judea. And Herod was Tetrarch of Galilee. You had different Herods. You had Herod the Great, who's earlier in Luke, when... Um, the wise men saw the star, and they came, and they were looking for this one who had been born. They talked with this guy's father, Herod the Great. This is the son. And by the way, he, he said, oh, well, yeah, yeah. When, when you find him, let me know. Well, they were warned in a dream to not let him know, because he was a killer. And it was uh, confirmed by the fact that he killed every infant boy in Bethlehem. That's not this guy. That was his dad. This guy is the son. This was a bad news family. They were horrific people, as we're going to see in a minute. By the way, when Herod the Great died, he was so despised, 
His family was incestuous, the, the violence, the, the murder. He, he killed many of his own sons, some of them he drowned, uh, killed one of his wives. Um, when he was dying, he ordered that 3,000 innocent people be killed so that someone be in, would be in mourning on the day of his death because he knew no one would be in mourning when he died. This is the wickedness. This is the roster of government leaders. Uh, Herod was Tetrarch of Galilee, sort of like, you know, you know, you know Jesus was going to Galilee. And his brother Philip, here's a brother, was Tetrarch of the region of uh, Iteria and Trachonitis. That's a hard word to say. Um, so Philip was over like in Rhode Island. Actually, it would be a little north. Uh, more like, up, say, up in Iowa somewhere, uh, above Galilee. And Licinius was Tetrarch of Abilene. You know, the, the, the Roman Empire spread all the way to West Texas. <laughs> And in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. You remember Caiaphas? We read about him. The word of God. When all these guys were in power, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Okay. So that's the roster of government leaders. We're going to come back to that because this is important. Uh, flip down to verse 19. But when Herod, and this here kind of fast forwards from the beginning of John's, the Baptist's ministry, to the beginning of the end of his ministry. But when Herod the Tetrarch, the governor, was reprimanded by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added this to them all, he locked John up in prison. So uh, John the Baptist speaks out against Herod taking his brother's wife. Flip over to Mark chapter 6 and note verse 17 picks up the rest of the story here. I'm going to read it quickly. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. And by the way, uh, Leviticus 20, 21 says that you shall not marry your brother's wife. Well, he did this. He broke the scripture. And so John the Baptist confronts him. So he was in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herodias had a grudge against him, that's the woman, and wanted to put him to death, but could not do so. Uh, Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. He had him in prison, but he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed. He used to enjoy listening to him. A strategic day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, so this is the daughter of the woman he had married he was in adultery with, uh, she was somewhere 15, 16. Some commentators say she could even be around 12 years old. All right? And she danced. And this wasn't an American bandstand dance. This was a sexual... Uh, yeah, the word's provocative. Yeah. 
She got, she got their attention. And, and these guys are half drunk to begin with. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in a dance, she pleased Herod and his dinner's guest. And the king said to the girl, in a drunken stupor, and, and he promised her something he actually couldn't deliver, but here's what he said, ask me for whatever you want and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, who had a grudge against John the Baptist, what shall I ask for? She said, the head of John the Baptist. That's what she asked for. I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was sorry yet because of his oaths, because of his dinner guest, he was unwilling to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and had him beheaded in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. Um, that's what you call godly, and that's what you call gutsy. He spoke the truth. Uh, I, I said in Luke 3, there was a roster, but if you go down to Luke 3, 19, there was resistance from the government officials. At the beginning of Luke, 19, uh, Luke 3, you have a roster of government officials. In Luke 3, 19, you have a, the resistance of government officials who did not want to hear the truth. Because you see, they had their own truth and they had their own morality. Uh, this is where we are today. So last week, instead of teaching on this, I told you I wasn't ready, and I wasn't ready. And one of the reasons I wasn't ready is that a day or two before, I had come across this book by Matthew Ruger, R-U-E-G-E-R, who is a Lutheran pastor in Hubbard, Iowa. The book is called Sexual Morality in a Christless World. This is a book. This is... This is a book worth reading. This is a book by a man who found himself, he's a pastor, he found himself uh, invited to speak in a classroom at Iowa State University uh, in a class, in an ethics class at Iowa State. Um, It, it was a class that really got into sexuality and the fact that anything's open, anything's good, anything is reasonable. And through a series of events, he was invited to go in there and speak before a very hostile audience. Uh, to me, this is a guy I had never heard of who was under the radar, but I think God's been preparing him his whole life to write this book and to speak in that situation. And one of the things he says is, my desire in writing this book is to help Christians engage the world around them in reasoned discussion. Because you know that the rhetoric has become downright vicious, he says. He encountered this at the university. Uh, it, it gets vicious, and it gets vicious fast. Um, but what he does in this book is that he goes back 
and looks, what's the title of it again? Sexual Morality in a Christless World. He goes back to the world of John the Baptist. He goes back to the world of the apostles. He goes back to the world in which Christianity was born and Jesus came and died and gave his life and rose from the dead. Uh, he gives us insight into the Roman world and the Roman Empire ran the world. He says this, when St. Paul wrote his letters to the Romans, Ephesians, and Corinthians, he is not calling on new converts to return to old traditions. He was instead calling on them to break with tradition and to dare to take a stand and admit the culture around them was wrong. Paul made it personal. He urged them to admit that they too had erred in the past by following cultural traditions that were out of step, that were out of step with God's will. With Christ came a new way of living, a new way and different, a different way of thinking and acting. Paul did not weigh public opinion to see if the new Christian morality would be accepted. He knew it would not be. Uh, he goes on. Such a bold confession put Christians at odd with, with anyone who kept to the older cultural ways, in particular. It earned Christians the deep abiding hatred of the Roman government, just simply to follow what the Scripture says about sexual principles. Sexual promiscuity, homosexuality, intercourse between adults and adolescents, prostitution and rape were not only legal, they were part and parcel of the cultural norm in the Roman Empire. What many progressives today, the old term is liberals, fail to understand is that the attitudes about sexuality they champion are in reality the practices and cultural norms of societies like Rome that predate the birth of Christ. What we're seeing today is just the rebirth of the morals of the Roman Empire. And all the epistles were written to churches that were under the dominance of the Roman Empire. Ironically, uh, the, the progressives, they and not Christians, are looking to return to ancient traditional standards. I'm going to leave it right there. There's more I'd like to read, but... Can't cover it all. So know this, that what the early believers in the New Testament were up against, we're starting to see. As our, as our culture has changed, and as the standards have changed, um, we're starting to walk into a little bit of what they were dealt with, and it took tremendous courage. It took courage for John to say what John said. Um, we looked at the roster of government leaders. He has a section in here on the example of Rome's leaders. Uh, there was an ancient writer named Suetonius who wrote a book called The Lives of the Twelve Caesars. He references that book in summarizing some of these Caesars. The first one he mentions is Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus was the leader of Rome when Jesus was born. You remember in, in the Christmas story, it talks about Caesar Augustus, all right? Augustus is often portrayed as one of the most fair-minded and level-headed of all the Caesars. His rule, which lasted 40 years, was looked upon as a model for others to emulate. Yet, 
Augustus's sexual exploits were well known by the general public. Uh, Pompey reproached him for being an, an effeminate fellow. Uh, Mark Anthony uh, said he earned his adoption from his uncle by uh, practicing prostitution. Um, there were stories of Augustus inviting senators to dinner, then taking the wife of a senator from the table to his bedroom only to return her with her hair in a mess and her ears glowing red. Suetonius tells of how in later years, his later years, the wife of Augustus helped him find beautiful young virgins from throughout the empire who were taken to him so that he could deflower them. Next one is uh, Caesar Tiberius, who was mentioned in Luke 3 at the beginning of the, uh, the, uh, the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry. And, and this is the Caesar who was pretty much running the show uh, during the ministry of Christ. Uh, and for much of the life of Christ. Following the death of Augustus, Tiberius reigned. His sexual immorality exceeded Augustus. He is said to have created a new publicly funded office for attending to his sexual pleasures. His retreat on the Isle of Capri was, treated, was created to be a sexual playground for his fantasies. So he actually appointed a lieutenant who pretty much ran the Roman Empire, and he would, hung, he would hang out on this island called Capri. In his retreat at Capri, he also contrived an apartment containing couches and adapted to the secret practice of abominable lewdness, where he entertained companies of girls and catamites and assembled from all quarters inventors of unnatural copulations who defiled one another in his presence to inflame by the exhibition uh, the languid appetite. He likewise contri contrived recesses in woods and groves for the gratification of lust, where young persons of both sexes prostituted themselves in caves and hollow rocks in the disguise of little pans and nymphs. Tiberius was known to practice pedophilia. He found pretty boys and trained them to swim with him in his pool in perverse ways. I can't read what follows after that. Um, he was a sexual predator, a rapist, a pedophile, and a bisexual adulterer. After him came Calig Caligula. If one were to take a psychopathic serial killer, Ruger writes, I'm quoting here from Ruger, and give him absolute power, one would end up with something like Caligula. Um, since the days of Julius, the Caesars were considered divine. They were considered God. Now, that's really important to understand. Caligula, however, took his divine status to new heights. He ordered all the images of the gods that were famous to be brought from Greece. He then commanded that their heads be removed and carved images of his own head be put on them. Um, There are several stories of Caligula inviting married couples to dinner. If one of the wives caught his fancy, he would take her into an adjoining room, rape her, and then come back to dinner and talk openly to his guest about her qualities as a lover. His passages included homosexual acts as well. Caligula reportedly had sex with male actors, freemen, and hostages. Suetonius relates that Caligula enjoyed cross-dressing. Uh, he was known for his unbelievable cruel humanity towards people. Um, 
There were many stories of murder and gross cruelty committed by Caligula. He ruled Rome for less than four years, from AD 37 to 41, yet it should be noted that these were critical years for Christianity. It was in his empire that the Christian gospel started to spread. His vicious cruelty stood in contrast to the self-sacrificing love of Christ that was being proclaimed by the apostles. Then you get to Claudius. Claudius is the only one of the Caesars reported to have an aversion to homosexual activity. Then you get to Nero. N Nero would bind up Christians in animal skins, set them in pitch, put them on post on the broad avenue into Rome, and he would light them on fire. And when you went into Rome, that's how you would see the road. Um, It goes on and says, uh, Ruger says, it's difficult for modern readers to appreciate the nature of the risks Christians face by challenging the morality of the Caesars. To challenge the morality of, this, of Caesar was tantamount to mocking God. And mocking the universal God of Rome was to attack the heart of Roman society. Worship of the Caesars was a mark of being a Roman and considered essential for the strength of the nation. That's what they were up against. Uh, you say, well, what about Herod and all? Herod and the Herod boys were just, they, they were governors underneath the Romans. But their lives reflected that same sexuality and cruelty. Um, there's more that can be said, but you get it. Tim Challies. Uh, has a website, challies.com. I check it pretty much every day, C-H-A-L-L-I-E-S. He's a book reviewer. He's a pastor. Um, he's got fresh material every day. He's, he's, that's, he's very good. He's got good resources. He's the one who put me on to this book by Ruger. The thing about Ruger's book is, I, I mean, you just... It, it, Every page is marked. His research, dealing with the issues that we're dealing today. He's got a chapter in there. What if my son tells me he's gay? He, it's just, it's a pretty much an all-encompassing approach. Very balanced, very wise um, for Christians in today's world. Challies then came out with an article kind of summarizing um, Ruger's comments on the sexuality of the Roman Empire. So I want to quote Challies summarizing Ruger. And maybe tonight I'll actually bring in an original thought, but I, I don't think so. Um, So Challies came out with an article, and the title of the article is this, Three Awful Features of Roman Sexual Morality. Three Awful Features of Roman Sexual Morality. Number one, Roman sexuality was about dominance. I'm gonna, I'll give you the three and we'll come back. Number one, Roman sexual morality was about dominance. Number two, Roman sexuality accepted pedophilia. Number three, Roman sexuality had a low view of womanhood. 
Let's go back to the first one. Roman sexuality was about dominance. Um, and I'll read his opening statement as he's summarizing Ruger. Charlie says, whatever else you know about the Bible, I'm sure you know this. It lays out a sexual ethic that displays God's intent in creating sexuality and that challenges humanity to live in ways consistent with it. Today we are experiencing a sexual revolution that has been that has seen society deliberately throwing off the Christian sexual ethic. Things that were once forbidden are now celebrated. Things that were once considered unthinkable are now seen natural and good. Christians are increasingly seen as backward, living out an ancient, repressive, irrelevant morality. This is hardly the first time Christians have lived out a sexual ethic that clashed with the world around them. It happened in the New Testament. So, First point, Roman sexuality was about dominance. Challies writes this, Romans did not think in terms of sexual orientation. Rather, sexuality was tied to ideas of masculinity, male adoption, and the adoption of the Greek pursuit of beauty. In the Roman mind, the strong took what they wanted to take. That's why back on Luke 3, John said to the Roman soldiers, you don't take more. Now, people had to assist Roman soldiers, but you don't take more than what's right. He told the tax collectors, and the tax collectors would work out contracts with the Romans, and they made their profit by taxing over and above what the Romans required. It was all about dominance and getting everything you get your hands on. It was socially acceptable for a strong Roman male to have intercourse with men or women alike, provided he was the aggressor. It was looked down, it was looked down upon to play the female receptive role in homosexual liaisons. A real, a real man dominated in the bedroom as he did on the battlefield. He would have sex with his slaves, whether they were male or female. He would visit prostitutes. He would have homosexual encounters. Even while married, he would engage in pederasty, even rape was generally acceptable as long as he only raped people of a lower status. He was strong, muscular, and hard in both body and spirit. Society looked down on him only when he appeared weak or soft. Uh, flip over with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul's going to give some instruction here. And I think you've read this before. I think with that background, it might, uh, you might read this now in hyper-focus. 1 Thessalonians 4.1. Talking to the church of Thessalonica. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that means to be set apart, you belong to him now. That is, watch this, this is the will of God, that is that you abstain from sexual immorality. The, the word that is used here is uh, the broad word, the word for adultery was moikia. The, the, the pornia, where we get pornography, Pornia is a word that is used for, it's, it's broad, it's anything else. It's all-encompassing. Whatever, whatever 
a deranged human mind can come up with would come under the term of pornea. Uh, this is the will of God that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. The Gentiles who were in control were the Roman Empire. You see, they did not know God. But because you know Christ, we've been given a different commandment. All right. So Roman sexuality was about dominance. Secondly, Roman sexuality accepted pedophilia. And again, I'll quote from Challies as he summarizes Ruger. The pursuit of beauty and the obsession with the masculine ideal led to the widespread practice of pederasty, a sexual relationship between an adult man and an adolescent boy. This had been a common feature of the Greek world and was adapted by the Romans who saw it as a natural expression of male privilege and domination. A Roman man would direct his sexual attention toward a slave boy or at times even a freeborn child and would continue to do so until the boy reached puberty. These relationships were seen as an acceptable and even idealized form of love, the kind of love that expressed itself in poem, story, uh, and song. In the Roman world, the man's wife was often seen as beneath him and less than him, but a sexual relationship with another male, boy or man, represented a higher form of intellectual love and engagement. This was part of the New Testament world. Third trait, Roman sexuality had a low view of women. Again, quoting Challies, women were not generally held in high regard in Roman culture. Women were often seen as weak physically and mentally they were inferior to men and existed to serve the men as little more than slaves at times. A woman's value was largely in her ability to bear children, and if she could not do so, she was quickly cast off. Because lifespans were short and infant mortality high, women were often married off in their young teens to maximize the number of children they could bear. When it came to sexual mores standards, women were held to a different standard than men. Where men were free to carry on homosexual affairs and to commit adultery with slaves, prostitutes, and concubines, a woman caught in adultery could be charged with a crime. The legal penalty for adultery allowed the husband to rape the male offender, and then, if he desired, to kill his wife. That's the Roman Empire moral standard. Under Augustus, it became illegal for a man to forgive his wife. He was forced to divorce her. Now, this is the culture that New Testament believers were faced with. This is heavy-duty stuff. Uh, something else from Chalice. The, Romans, the Roman culture's brand of sexual morality was exemplified in the Caesars, who one after the other were living icons of immorality and cruelty, using sex as a means of domination and self-gratification. Now, this is important, this next paragraph. With this system, evil as it looks to our eyes, this system was accepted and even celebrated by Rome. It was foundational to Roman culture. To be a good Roman citizen, a man needed to participate in it, 
or at least not protest against it. To be loyal to Rome, one had to be loyal to the morality of Rome. To the Romans, the biblical view would have been seen as disruptive to the social fabric and demeaning of the Roman ideal of masculinity. So as a result, Christianity was condemned, as you can imagine. Uh, Christianity did not simply represent an alternate, an alternate system of morality, but one that condemned the existing system the system that was foundational to Roman identity and stability. Christians were outsiders, Christians were traitors, Christians were dangerous. That's what New Testament believers were up against. Now, I actually have three thoughts I would like to share. <laughs> this is sobering. You know, throughout Scripture, you have this comparison between darkness and light. <coughs> this is darkness, what we just read. Utter, absolute darkness. Wherever Jesus Christ is, there is light. Wherever Jesus Christ is, there is hope. Wherever Jesus Christ is, people are set free. Let me give you three biblical principles about biblical morality. Number one, Christian sexuality is about marriage only. Say it again. Christian sexuality is about marriage only. Uh, turn over, if you would, to the first book of the Bible, Genesis, which, as you know, is not true. <laughs> especially the earlier chapters, there's just absolutely no way they could be true. Talks about God creating the world, God creating everything in the world. Obviously, it's myth. Then you get into Genesis 2, and God created the first man and the first woman. Obviously, not true. Um, yet, yet, it is true. If, if, Genesis, if your Bible is wrong in the very first chapters, why in the world would you trust anything else in the Bible? It makes no sense. So you read in Genesis 2, uh, Adam, he named all the animals. All the animals came to him. It was his job to name the entire creation. He began to pick up a pattern, um, male, female, male, female male, female, as he's doing this, going about his business, he's, uh, he, he's, he's lonely. There's no one to correspond to him. And without taking the time to, to read all of this, um, I will read verse 18. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Um, and then the account is given that the Lord formed every beast of the field and bring, he would bring them to Adam. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was his name. Uh, but for Adam, in verse 20, there was not a helper found suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. He took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned to a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, as he viewed this naked woman, 
he said, thank you, Jesus. I mean, I, I kind of think that's what he said. I mean, isn't that what you'd say? You, you'd never seen that before. Oh, and by the way, and by the way, who invented this? Who created this? God. We, we act like God's the great sexual killjoy. He's not the great sexual killjoy. He's the inventor of the whole thing. He came up with this stuff. That puts a smile on my face, boys, I'll tell you that. How about you? The man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. When you're excited at a football game and a guy breaks through the line and goes 98 yards, do you jump up and say, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh? We don't talk like that. Get what he's saying. He's excited. After seeing everything in the creation, everything, he's alone. He's acutely aware that he's alone. He sees this woman in front of him. He can't believe this. He says, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Whoa, I'm kind of adding to the text here. <laughs> because she was taken out of man. Having a little fun with this, but I, I, really, I, I think what, what I'm saying is accurate. I think this guy was just absolutely enthralled, enjoyed, and couldn't, he, he was just stunned. This is incredible, and it is incredible. But you see, um, see, sex is a wonderful gift from God. But sex is designed by God to run within his boundaries and his borders. Um, maybe you and your wife have had a picnic lunch alongside a docile, beautiful, flowing river. Just wonderful. You let that river hit flood stage. It's not wonderful. You're not uh, sipping the wine and eating the cheese and the brie. You're running for the hills. When something is within its banks, it's beautiful. When it gets out of the banks, it's destructive. That's the way sex is. My principle was, as opposed to the Roman principle of Roman sexuality was about dominance, male dominance, the biblical principle is Christian sexuality is about marriage only. Note 224 of Genesis. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. We've known this for thousands of years, thousands of years, thousands of years. Until recently, we're so cotton-picking brilliant that we're stupid. Marriage is man and woman, period. That's how God made it. It's always been understood. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That is the only sexual relationship that God approves, condones, and encourages. Period. That's it. There's a man and woman, a man and woman who are married. That's it. Anything else is sexual sin. Used to have a guy come to the Bible study. Older guy. Um, and he quit coming. That's, guys come, they leave, that happens. 
and never thought much about it. Maybe several years later, uh, a guy told me, you remember that time you were talking about uh, sexual morality in Scripture and that it's only within the bonds of marriage? And you talked about that old guy you saw in that restaurant in Indiana when you were having breakfast. I said, I remember that. I was having breakfast at a Bob Evans coffee shop before a Promise Keepers thing. And uh, I'm just sitting there eating my, you know, my scrambled eggs. And there's a guy over in another booth. He's probably, I don't know, 80 at least. And they all know him, you know. They, all the waitresses, the manager, he, he's a regular. Hey, man, how you doing? How you doing? And this waitress comes by, nice-looking gal, probably late 30s, 40, something like that. She walks by and asks if he wants another cup of coffee. And as she starts to, he reaches up and pulls her down and kisses her straight on the lips. And coffee spills, and she says, you know, Herodias. I don't know what she called him. Whatever the guy's name was. Herod. Uh, Tiberius. I mean... And manager came over, and they had him leave. Well, I'm telling that story, and then this guy's saying, yeah, that guy that used to come, the older guy? Yeah, I haven't seen him in a long time. Yeah, well, he got offended when you said that only, the only relationship sexually that God approved of was within marriage between a man, a husband and a wife. I said, really? Yeah, because you see, his wife had a lot of physical problems, and... Um, she, she couldn't be involved in sexual activity with him. So she, he, at his request, she gave him permission to have a sexual relationship with a gal who came in and cleaned the house. Uh, that guy would walk in with that big Bible. But you know what? He was a guy who was going to make his own rules. This is the will of God. You know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus? That you abstain from sexual immorality. He wasn't going to do that. Really, I mean, honestly, at the root of it, he's no different than any of these modern things that are coming down the pike because you see it all comes down to, I'm going to make my own rules. And I am absolutely autonomous and no one's going to tell me what to do. And don't you judge me. We had a guy that used to come to the Bible study. A lot of guys used to come. <laughs> but we just drive them away. Kind of what we do here. This guy came and, you know, I took him around. He was involved, you know. Well, someone told me down the road that that gal he was always with, who I assume was his wife, it wasn't his wife. He'd been divorced. That gal had been divorced. It was his girlfriend. But they lived together as husband and wife because something to do with the Social Security benefits and all this. and So they just go ahead and live together. I mean, he had a big Bible too. And as I recall, he loved hymns. He just loved them. But you see, this is the will of God. You know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus that you abstain from sexual immorality. See, my point is, this is not only 
unpopular outside the church. This is unpopular inside the church. Second biblical principle I'd like to give to you. Christian sexuality protects children. Now, this is in contrast to the second principle about Roman sexuality, uh, which was, if you recall, Roman sexuality accepted pedophilia. The biblical viewpoint is Christian sexuality protects children. Um, I would take you back to 1 Thessalonians 4. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Um, anything other than the husband-wife sexual relationship is sexual sin. You see? I've had young guys tell me, well, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm just, I'm, yeah, we're living together. Yeah, yeah, we are. We're living together. Yeah, we're Christians. I know, yeah, we shouldn't. Okay? Well, I just want to know if we're sexually compatible. Well, hey, listen, man, if you're male and she's female, you're good. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're compatible. What he wants to know is, does she meet my performance levels? And if not, he's going to cast her off. Okay. Let's go to number two. Christian sexuality protects children. Uh, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So you say, no, what, so what's the verse on that again? Well, the verse is, 1 Thessalonians 4, that you abstain from sexual immorality. What is immoral is any sexual relationship other than the husband-wife relationship in marriage. Anything else is immoral. If you're talking pedophilia, it's immoral. If you're talking bestiality, it's immoral. Whatever else you come up with, it's immoral. Uh, let's go to 1 Corinthians 6. And, and again, think about the Roman culture. This, this was not popular. This didn't go over real well. By the way, the Christian position does not go over real well right now. And, and it really isn't necessary for you to confront, like John the Baptist did, it really isn't necessary for you to confront publicly uh, a leader, a, a, a political leader, on their sexual activity for you to be uh, persecuted, that's not even necessary where you are now. All you have to do is have a biblical conviction which you will not violate. You see? That's all you have to do is stand on your biblical conviction. You're not out there beating a drum. You're not out there with a radio program. You're just living your life. Loving your wife, loving your kids, paying your taxes, going to work, you're just being a good citizen. Uh, somewhere in First Thessalonians, it says, make your ambition to lead a quiet life and to work with your hands. You're just a citizen. You're a good citizen. But you see, where we are, if you've got a biblical conviction and you won't move, I mean, you, you know, you just like bacon cakes. I mean, it's what you enjoy. You're good at it. That used to be okay. It's not okay anymore. You know, you got a florist outfit. You know, that's your deal. It's your family business. Maybe three generations. That was great. Not anymore. Not if you've got a Christian conviction. And you know it, and I know it. We don't have to read and go through the story. 
We see it constantly. You don't have to publicly confront. You just have to believe it and be willing to stand. Uh, let's go to 1 Corinthians 6. I'm really trying to get there. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And he's talking to a group of believers in Corinth. Do not be deceived. And I'm going to read this all the way to verse 11, and then we'll come back and comment on it. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, that's sexual immorality, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. I've talked about Ray Stedman quite a bit lately. There's all kinds of Ray Stedman stories. <laughs> he was a man. He, he, he was a godly man. You talk about godly and gutsy. So one time at PBC, Peninsula Bible Church, Ray's teaching on this, and he reads his passage. And he reads, he, he reads 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 10, 11. Such were some were you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the Spirit of God. And Ray looked out on the congregation and he said, if any of those sins characterized you, would you stand to your feet? <laughs> this is the middle of a service on a Sunday morning. And everybody kind of looks around and, you know, you get a little, you know, uh, awkward laughter. And, <laughs> <laughs> and Ray just stood there and looked at him. And then some guy over, hood, over there stood up. Always takes one guy, just one guy. One guy will lead. And then someone else stood up. And someone else. And within two minutes, the entire congregation were on their feet. Because every single one of us is in that group. Every single one of us. Such were some of you. That's what we used to be. Before Jesus pulled us to himself. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the spirit of our God. You were justified. And because, therefore, therefore we have been justified by faith, Romans 5, we have peace with God. <coughs> Go back to verse 9. And I want to say something as we're going to talk about some of these things that are mentioned here, Okay? Uh, I, I think at times in the past, I, I have, I, I think I have unnecessarily hurt some people who have struggled with homosexuality. And, and I didn't mean to, I did it out of ignorance. But I've come to understand, you have, we've, we've all seen this, what I would call militant homosexuals. And they give absolutely no apology. They justify what they do and all of that. But that's not all homosexual folks, people that struggle with homosexuality. Um, there are a lot of people who struggle with homosexual same-sex feelings and temptations who hate it. They wish it wasn't there. There are different reasons people struggle with homosexual temptations different reasons, won't go into them. 
but it's a mistake, and in the past I've made the mistake of putting folks who struggle with homosexual temptations in the same category. Uh, I, I've, I've had a lot of conversations with, with guys who struggle with this. Some are unrepentant, just you know, stare you down, do whatever they can do to intimidate you. Others are brokenhearted. They wish it wasn't there. They wish they wouldn't have, they, they, they just want it to go away. They, they believe the scriptures. I believe the scriptures about heterosexual adultery. I, I believe the scriptures, I, I don't deal with same-sex attraction. I deal with opposite-sex attraction. You're either dealing with one or you're dealing with the other. And do you ever wish that would go away? It just cut you some slack? I, I had a day last week and I'm, I'm driving through Highland Village, and there's this gal, and she's got her running thing on. There's not a whole lot to it, but... And I saw her because it was, you know, they have these lime green colors now and, and orange, and they kind of they broadcast themselves. I mean, you can't miss them. Um, and, I, and I saw her at a distance, and I purposely, I just looked on the other side of the road and uh, slammed into a truck in front of me. <laughs> no, I, I, that's not what happened. But I purposely, because I wrote in Point Man years away that you got to train yourself to look away. You see, what you want to do is that you just want to look. But you got to train yourself for godliness, and you got to train yourself to look away, and it's hard. You see, it's really hard. But in that situation, I looked away. And then later that day, I was somewhere, I was at a store or something, and there was another gal, and I mean, there she was, and I'm walking out of this, whatever it was, and I looked, and I looked away, and I looked back. And I thought, Dad gummit. You're almost 70 years old. What is wrong with you? I'd done all right in the morning. I, 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 I just confessed it, and I, I just said, I'm thankful there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So whether it's same-sex attraction or opposite-sex attraction, we deal with this stuff. And some of us have a history in it. Such were some of you. But see, you don't identify yourself by that. That's not your identity. Your identity is Jesus Christ. That's your identity. You belong to him. Let's look at 6-9. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, the, the sexual immoral. This would be the pornea. Okay. This is anything outside of marriage. Anything you can think of. Then no, it says, nor adulterers. That's moikia. Moikia is specifically uh, violating your marriage vows, going outside of marriage and having sex with someone other than your spouse. Nor effeminate. Uh, this literally is effeminate by perversion or soft. Do you remember the Romans? You could do anything sexually, 
even homosexuality, as long as you were not in the soft position, as long as you were not in the passive position in homosexuality. That's what this refers to. And then it goes on and says, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, that's homosexuality from the aggressive position, which the Romans approved of. You see, it's all sexual sin. Nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards. We got a lot of former drunks in here, right? We got a lot of former cocaine guys. We're all screwed up. We just got different stuff. We're all screwed up. We all need Jesus. We all need forgiveness. Such were some of you. Some of us have unbelievable tempers. Unbelievable tempers. You need the Lord. Okay. My point is, when you break this down, the only sexual relationship, I'll say it again, this is so contrary to our culture, you've got to repeat it. The only sexual relationship that God approves us is a husband and wife in the confines of marriage. So that protects children. That protects them. This is why you've got to get a grip on pornography before it really, you see, it grips you. And what pleases you on pornography now won't please you in five years. The guys I know, that, and, and you're ashamed, and guys are embarrassed because I can't believe I'm doing this. I don't want anyone to find out. The thing you have to do, some sins you can't beat by yourself. James said, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The guys that I know that have struggled with sexual sin and struggled with pornography have done the thing, the absolute last thing they ever want to do, and they have gone and confessed to a brother who is mature in Christ who knows how to keep his mouth shut. If they don't know how to keep a confidence, don't you tell them. But you got to know you can trust them. It'd be a pastor, whoever, someone you respect your walk in Christ. And I'm going to tell you something. They will not turn you away. They will... <laughs> I, I will say this. A man who does that, that's unbelievable courage. It's absolute courage because you've taken yourself and your sin out of the darkness and into the light, and you've, it, you've exposed it. And the last thing you want is for anyone to know. Here's what happens. Satan has you trapped in that. But the moment you confess that to a brother, you have outflanked Satan. He's got nothing on you anymore. And your brother is not going to condemn you. He's going to accept you. And now you guys are going to walk through this together, and you're going to encourage one another, and you're going to pray for one another, and you sign up for one of those... Christian software deals, and at the end of the month, he gets a printout of every website you've been on, and you get a printout of every website he's been on, and that's called accountability, and you go over it, and you deal with it. I know guys that used to be trapped in that, and you know what? I know guys that have ministries. The guys that have ministries to guys that are sexually addicted are the guys that used to be sexually addicted, and such were some of you. You see, this can be broken by the power of Christ. Anything can be broken by the power of Christ. Anything can be broken. Doesn't mean you don't have to be domineered by it. In this life, you will be harassed by sin, but you don't have to be dominated by sin because of the power of Christ. He sets the captive free. Third thing, Christian sexuality honors, protects, and cares for women, as opposed to the Romans who had a low view of womanhood. Man, we could talk about this for a couple hours. And I've only got 90 minutes left. 
little humor there, boys. All right. Let's go to Ephesians 5.25, and then we'll wrap it up. Ephesians 5.25. Oh, the point was Christian sexuality honors, protects, and cares for women. As opposed to Roman sexuality, which had a low view of womanhood. Once again, Christian sexuality honors, protects, and cares for women. Uh, Ephesians 5, verse, um, I'm not going to read the whole section, but let's read 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Let me just stop and give a parenthesis. I had a guy ask me at a conference a few weeks ago. Uh, I, see, I see verses on how to raise your sons. I don't see verses specifically on how to raise your daughters. I, I think that's true. I'll tell you what I tried to do. The verses that I would read that would tell me how to treat my wife, I would apply to my daughter. Because your daughter will probably one day grow up to be a wife. How will she know what kind of man to look for? So what a father does, the way that you treat the mother, that gives your daughter a model of male masculinity. She has an invisible template when young men come into her life and want to date her. And uh, if they're short with her and they're critical and they tear her down, they should bounce off the template of your example, the invisible template. They want to take advantage of her sexually. They should bounce off because her father is a one-woman man, not a multi-woman man, you see. Okay, so what, what we're going to read here about wives apply to your daughters. Husbands, love your wives. I'm in 25 of 5 of Ephesians. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. That doesn't demean women. So that he might sanctify her, that he might set her apart, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. Christian Husbands are to model the love of Christ in their love for their wives. The way Jesus loved the church is how I'm supposed to love my wife. Jesus got killed for the church. Jesus got hammered for the church. So often I hear guys, she doesn't meet my needs, she doesn't meet my, and, and listen, that's, it, that can be very difficult, that can be very hard. I, I, I know guys who haven't had sex with their wives in seven, eight, nine years. She's a Christian woman, and it, that needs to be addressed. That's not right, according to 1 Corinthians 7. There may be reasons for that, that need to be dealt with. I, I'm just saying it's hard when needs aren't met, needs that should be met. But a wife can't meet every need. No human can meet every need. Sometimes in our culture, in Christianity, we have a divorce culture within Christianity. We have a lot of people that a pass on divorce who are divorcing for, for reasons that are not biblical. She doesn't meet my needs. She doesn't meet my needs. You're not there to get your needs met. You're there to meet needs. You're there to love her as Christ. Jesus came and met the needs of the church. You got it reversed, if that's your thinking. Look at verse 28. Husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. 
You take care of your body? You care, you're concerned about your body? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you don't want people putting needles in your body. You don't want people doing this. You don't, we, we, husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Again, I could talk for quite a while on this. Let me just say this. I've said it before in here. Christian sexuality honors, protects, and cares for women. Um, cares for women. The idea of a husband. Jesus here is the husband of the church. The church is called the bride of Christ. You want to know how to husband, you look at Jesus. I've said this before. It used to be a major called animal husbandry. It's the breeding and care of animals. Livestock. It's a science. Uh, there's agricultural husbandry. If you've got crops, I got a friend in western Nebraska, farms 4,000 acres. He's got hay, he's got alfalfa, he's got soybeans, he's got wheat, he's got barley, he's got. But you got to care for the land. You got to husband the land. You got to take care. You got to take care. The Roman culture would take from women. The Christian standard is to take care of your wife and your daughter and a widow or single mom who you know who's in need. That's true in undefiled religion, taking care of widows and orphans. You take care. You don't take advantage. You don't take over. It's not male dominance. You don't take over. And when you're frustrated, you don't take off. You take care. You take care. And may I say that this is also radical, that if you ask the Lord to help you live in this way, you'll be hated by this world. But you will be loved by those who are the most important to you. It's our job to make our homes safe and secure. This world is not safe, and it's not secure. But our homes should be a bastion of safety and security because there is a man who is not a Roman man, but a Christian man who is following the Lord Jesus. So we pray, Father, that you will help us in our growth we confess our sins and shortcomings. We thank you for the forgiveness that's in Christ. We're living in uh, troubled times. But may we be of good courage and gutsy and not allow fear to overwhelm us. We fear you who loved us and gave yourself up for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.